Amen. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Jessica, for bringing uh, our attention to World Relief, um, a great organization. If, uh, if that fits within your family time structure and can get involved in some way, I know um, the Lord would use you in a powerful way there uh, as he has been using others. Some of you have already been involved with World Relief, so you're very familiar with that. Um, good morning. Great to see you all here this morning. Truly uh, honored that, that we have a, a third service crowd here. And uh, thankful for each and every one of you um, this morning. We're going to be in Acts 11 in just a minute. If you want to go ahead and turn there uh, in your Bible or on your, your phone or tablet, uh, we'll pick that up in just a moment. I um, want to just begin this morning just a personal word of thanks to you guys as a church family. Um, not all, you may not be completely aware, um, but uh, I lost my father this past Wednesday uh, morning. And uh, it, was a, it was a hard week, but, um, but had some really precious time with my father that I'm thankful for. And most importantly, I had a chance to talk with him about his faith and, uh, and got to hear him with his own confession uh, that he is a believer. And so Wednesday morning truly was, was, a, was a homecoming for him. And, uh, and so all that to say, you guys have been awesome as a church for our family. Um, I say it often. I would go to church here even if I weren't the pastor. And I, I truly mean that. You guys are, are an incredible church family. So thank you uh, for your love for our family this week. It's been awesome. And uh, not just our family, but uh, Nick Hill. Um, has lost a grandparent this week. Of course, a Brewer student um, took his own life this week, and so it's been a, it's been a rough week for our community, um, but you guys have been awesome as a church, so thank you for that. Um, this morning, we're going to be talking about um, the, the marks of a church on mission. So we're in a sermon series where we're looking at what it means to be a church on mission, and today we're going to look at the church in Antioch, in the early church in Acts 11, 12, and 13. We're covering three chapters this morning, so fasten your seatbelt. Um, we aren't going verse by verse, so you can rest easy. We're going we're gonna to skip through and look at a couple key moments, a couple key identity markers of the church in Antioch and why it's such a significant part of, just, of church history and the mission that Jesus had called the church to. Um, after this week and next week, we'll be done with this sermon series, and we're going to move into our summer sermon series, which will be redemption stories. And we're going to, every, each and every week, we're going to be looking at a redemption story of somebody from our church. You're going to get to hear from our folks about how God has brought redemption to certain situations in, in people's lives within our own church. And so I'm excited about that sermon series. I think we have seven or eight different folks lined up for that. And then once we finish that sermon series, we'll be gearing up for a sermon series where we walk through the book of Acts It'll take us about 18 months to get through the book of Acts, and we'll come back to the, the, very, uh, the very chapters we're going to be looking at today and go through it a lot slower, verse by verse, probably take us three to four weeks to go through what we're going through today, but that'll probably be a year down the road or so. So there's kind of your overview of where we're going. Uh, I'm excited to talk with you about the church in Antioch. I think um, for me to kind of set the stage for you, I think it's important to understand um, uh, some background to what's happening in Antioch, Okay. And so today may be the first day you've ever heard that name, Antioch. What is Antioch and what does it have to do with church and Jesus? So backing all the way up to the Gospels, in Matthew 28, Jesus gives the church its mission. We've been talking about that week in, week out. We don't get to make up our mission. We don't get to determine as a church what we want our mission to be. Jesus said, here's your mission. I'm establishing the church to make disciples of the nations, which the word nations could translate ethnicities, all people groups, all ethnicities, 
And, I, and I'm commissioning the church to do that through two primary strategies. One is baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. So we know that um, believing in Jesus, becoming a Christian and expressing that in baptism is an important part of, about becoming a disciple. But then he goes on to say, and also teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. So that's the end of the Gospel of Matthew. In Acts, the book of Acts, which is written by Luke. He's also the one who wrote the gospel of Luke. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, he captures a moment where Jesus is giving the same instruction with a very specific strategy. And what Jesus says in Acts 1, eight to his followers is this, the Holy Spirit is gonna come upon you in power and you're gonna take my gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then shortly after that, Jesus ascends back to the right hand of the Father and leaves that mission in the hands of the church. And the church launches from there. Acts 2 is huge. The Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost. The church launches and thousands of people become believers there in Jerusalem. So Jesus commissions the church to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. Now for the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, the gospel is primarily being preached in Jerusalem to the Jews. Matter of fact, in, in Acts 6, the church is growing. It's becoming overwhelming. So the apostles bring on seven additional ministry assistants there to help out with feeding and getting things happening there within the church. And, and one of those uh, men is a guy named Stephen. And what happens is Stephen gets arrested in Acts 7. Uh, he is persecuted and, and, and given the attempt to recant of his allegiance to Jesus. And rather than recanting, Stephen steps up before a crowd and preaches this amazing sermon, which, which, uh, which doesn't end with an applause. It ends with these persecutors stoning him to death. And then in Acts 8.1, we read that Saul, who would later become a Paul, the apostle Paul, was there giving approval to Stephen's death. And from there, the, the gospel then is taken from Jerusalem out towards the ends of the earth. And, and the Christians are dispersed in Acts 8. So what, what Jesus commissioned in Acts 1a doesn't even begin to happen geographically until you get all the way to Acts chapter 8. Now, going forward from there though, the gospel is beginning to expand geographically from J J Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria towards the ends of the earth, but it hasn't begun to truly expand beyond the borders of Judaism. Still the gospel is being passed on from, from Jew to Jew, and the Gentiles are, are really outsiders still, looking in, watching the church explode and move out, right? And, and so what we're going to see in Antioch is this real pivotal moment in the history of the church. And so we're going to start in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Luke is going to remind us of what happened to Stephen. In Acts eleven nineteen, 19, we read these words. Now those who were scattered... Because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. So we see this expansion of the church geographically, but we've got a significant issue, don't we? The commission wasn't to the disciples to take the gospel of Jesus to the Jews who live on earth. The gospel, or the commission was to take the gospel to all nations, all ethnicities. And here we are, and what Luke wants us to see here is that hasn't taken place yet. 
There are a few little hints that non-Jewish people have become believers, but we're gonna see what's happening is this. In order to become a Christian, the Jews were requiring the Gentiles to first become clean Jews and then become Christians. They're forcing the men to become circumcised. They're forcing families to submit themselves to Jewish rituals and cleansing rites. And then and only then could you be a good Christian. And so here in Antioch, everything changes. Verse 20, but, this is a good but, but something's different here in Antioch. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Now this is a big moment in church history. Because not only is the gospel moving out geographically, but there were some followers of Jesus who were so bold that they actually preached the true gospel to the Greeks, to the Hellenists, to the Gentiles. And this was a big deal for the Jews. You know, for, for, for a long time, the Jews were operating under this stigma that anybody that wasn't Jew, not only did they have a different belief system, but they were unclean, right? And so they didn't interact. So the idea of sharing meals with these unclean Gentiles, worshiping with these unclean Gentiles, it was a big struggle for the Jews. And so this is a big statement. There were a few followers of Jesus we're going to see here in Antioch who were willing to take the gospel beyond the boundaries of what was comfortable, what was familiar, what was deemed clean, and step into the unclean world to take the gospel and the hope of Jesus. You see, the Jews early on preached the gospel of faith in Jesus, but it was faith plus works equals salvation. Jesus has grace for you. You need to believe but then they added to it these rituals and these acts that you had to work to add to your faith if you wanted to be in God's good pleasure. And it's here in Antioch that things change. Now, you know, here in our current culture, I think, um, I don't know where you're from, but I'm from the South. I'm from this area. And even here in the Bible Belt, we still practice and we still struggle with some of these same things where we add things to the gospel. Faith plus church clothes. Faith plus, right? The right Christian ghetto lingo. Faith plus. And we indirectly, if we're not careful, preach this same twisted gospel, right? That faith plus conformity equals salvation. And we fail to realize that that's not how the gospel works at all. It's faith and faith alone in Jesus alone that produces salvation and give it time and it will produce faith and good works. But, but Jesus uses farming metaphors to describe how that works. You've been around farming? It takes a long time. You cultivate, you turn up the soil, you plant seeds and then you wait and you wonder, did we plant the right kind of seeds? Are they ever gonna come up? And, and, then, and then there's a little little signal that something's alive, a little sprout, a burst forth, and you can begin to see life happening. Here's, this is the metaphors we get to describe, right, when, when somebody truly responds to the gospel, Matthew 13, that there will be fruit that comes out of their life, but it's not faith plus fruit that equals salvation. It's faith and faith alone. And here in Antioch, that gospel is being realized when it's taken beyond the borders of what's familiar, who looks like us, who acts like us, Right? This is, you know, even in our culture today, we, we, tend to, we tend to want to conform people into our image here in the church, don't we? 
well, this person's all tatted up and this person just got out of prison and we want them to have the hope in Jesus, but we need them to look like us and talk like us and act like us. And you see, we're, if we're not careful, we're guilty of the same thing. Only sharing the gospel with those who look like us. And so what's happening here with these men from Antioch is huge. Now, um, here's what's going to happen in just a minute. Jerusalem's going to catch word of what's happening, and it's going to catch their attention. But let's finish where we're at right now. So verse 21 says this, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now that phrase, or ones like it, are, um, are sprinkled all throughout the book of Acts. Luke, as you read Acts, he wants you to feel the expansion of the church happening in like huge waves. It's not a few believers trickling in here and there at the end of church services. Thousands of people are becoming believers throughout the book of Acts. Okay, And so what's happening, first of all, here in Jerusalem, what was happening in Jerusalem, Acts 2, 3,000 believers become uh, saved there at Peter's preaching. And then in Acts 4, several thousand more. There's these huge waves of believers coming to faith in Jesus. Now it's happening among the Gentiles. Okay, Now it's happening, it's happening beyond the boundaries of Judaism and truly reaching the nations. And a great number who believe turned to the Lord. So one of the first marks I want to put out of a church that's truly on mission is this. A church on mission preaches the true gospel based on faith alone. I don't care what style of music it is. I don't care whether it's formal or casual in dress, whether they meet indoors or outdoors, whether they have a steeple or not, whether they're trendy or not. The mark of a church that is truly on mission is this. Regardless of how they, they package it, the gospel message is faith alone and Jesus alone equals salvation. Whether you're in the villages of, 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 of northern India or you're right here in Fort Worth, Texas, that's the gospel being preached here in Antioch. The church on mission preaches the true gospel based on faith alone. Verse 22 now. Now this is word of what's happening in Antioch is going to reach the church leaders back in Jerusalem. Okay, And so here's what's going to happen. The report of this, verse 22 came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And so this is how they respond. They send Barnabas to Antioch. They hear about this, what's going on down in it. This is kind of big. Hey, let's send Barnabas. Bar Barnabas, we need you to go down and check out what's going on here. We're hearing that the church is exploding and growing, but we're hearing that like Gentiles are being invited into the faith and we need you to go check it out. So Barnabas goes, verse 23. When he came, when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, trying to grasp what's being expressed here, what Luke is saying is that the grace of God was so tangible in what was going on in Antioch when Barnabas came to see what was going on, he could see it. He could see the grace of God washing over all these believers. And so when he saw it, rather than correcting it or changing it, he said to them, oh my gosh, keep doing what you're doing. Like, this is it. This is what Jesus told us to do. We, we've got to take this back to Jerusalem. Like, this is amazing. Hey, keep doing what you're doing. Remain steadfast in your purpose. Verse 24 says, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. 
verse 25. So Barnabas, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who by this point, by the way, is now Paul. He was killing Christians in, in Acts 8, becomes a Christian, and now he's a believer. And Barnabas said, I got to go, go get Saul or Paul and bring him in on this. So he goes to Tarsus. He looks for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And the Antioch, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's remarkable. I don't think that's a lighthearted phrase that Luke is writing here. That this is one of the, this is the first place in a broad way that the followers of Jesus bore this identity of Christ-like. It's a very pivotal moment in church history. It didn't mean that they all got t-shirts all made the same, right? And all had the little igthus on the door of their house. And like, that's not what's being expressed here. But truly the, the gospel has come to the nations. And this is the first place the followers of Jesus are, are given that identity, Christ-like Christians. Now, it's beautiful is what we just read is that they're just carrying out what Jesus told them to do in Matthew 28 and Acts 1. Go make disciples of the nations, all ethnicities, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and doing what? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. So Barnabas shows up. He's like, this is awesome. I mean, revival is breaking out. What was his response? I got to get Paul in on this. Goes to Tarsus, grabs Paul. They come back and they set up shop and start teaching for a full year. Can you imagine having your key church leaders and disciples being Paul and Barnabas? So all these believers are now underneath the discipleship of Paul and Barnabas. Let's talk for a minute about discipleship. Um, about a week ago, week and a half ago, we uh, did a video blog responding to uh, questions that you guys had about discipleship in the church. And, and before digging too deep in that, we really just need to stop and talk about what is discipleship. And we don't use that word really in any other context. Discipleship means, or to be a disciple means to be a learner. So discipleship is teaching, right? So Jesus said, make disciples by baptizing them and by teaching them. So we know that teaching is a part of becoming a disciple. So really what Paul and Barnabas are doing are just carrying out what Jesus told them to do, right? This isn't, this isn't new. They didn't learn this at, you know, how to grow a church concept seminar conference, they're just doing what Jesus said to do. So they set up shop for a year, right? Figuring it out. Hey, let's get a group together and we'll teach about this and we'll walk through the law of Moses and we'll walk through the Psalms and we'll, we'll talk about Jonah and they'll walk through all these the Old Testament truths that ultimately point to salvation in Jesus. And they're just spending a year here discipling these Christians here in Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. The second identity marker of a church that's on mission, a church on mission is faithful to God's purpose. Did you catch that? He said, remain faithful, remain faithful in God's purpose as a church. Keep doing what you're doing. What were they doing? Baptizing new believers and what? Teaching them. A church on mission is faithful to God's purpose to make disciples for Jesus by baptizing new believers and teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. all that Jesus has commanded. Now, what's gonna happen is uh, the church in Jerusalem is gonna, is gonna hear kind of what's going on there in Antioch, and now other teachers and prophets are gonna be coming down to Antioch to kind of figure out what's going on here and to get in on it. And so in verse 27 of Acts 11, 
In these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. These are Christian prophets. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And then we know historically, as the scripture reads, this took place in the days of Claudius. So here's what's happening. You've got a Christian believer who's come down from Jerusalem to bring a prophetic word to the church in Antioch. I'm interested to see how they're going to respond. Okay? So they've got it going on in their town. God is moving. Believers, Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus. This prophet comes down and says, hey, church, I've got a word for you from the Lord. Be prepared because a great famine is about to break out all over the world. Now let's look at how they responded. Verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And we actually see this over and over again in the book of Acts, that these new believers, these followers of Jesus, when a need arises, they always respond with sacrificial giving. It's a key identity marker that Luke points out. It points it out in Acts 2, again in Acts 4, pointing it out here. Now for these folks, they're not even seeing the need yet. This is purely on faith. Well, if that's going to happen and that's a word from the Lord, let's be prepared to respond. And each one, according to his ability, came and brought a sacrificial financial gift, right, to be prepared for that, to take care of any brother or sister who was in need. Um, this, this past week um, at the all-member meeting, I wasn't able to be there. Um, some of you were there, and you got to hear kind of just some really awesome things that God's been doing uh, behind the scenes uh, in our church. And part of the information that we shared was just how God's growing our church. Like, it's, 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 it's numerical. Like, we've, we've grown by 15% uh, since the first of the year. I mean, that's huge for a little church like us. And, you know, not only that, our giving has gone up 19%. You say, why, why is that important? I think it, it is important because here's the thing. Giving to the church is truly a faith-based act, right? I mean, we don't do that to get rich. You go to a financial investor if you want to invest money to get a return. We do that based on faith. We believe in the supernatural. We believe in the miraculous. We believe that God has called us by faith to give to the work he is doing, that he will bless that and multiply that, and he ultimately will use that resource to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's been doing it for over 2,000 years. So the way they're responding to need is very much like you guys have been responding as a church. I just want to encourage you. I'm so encouraged. And, and it, trust me, it has nothing to do with the numeric dollar sign value. What I love is that you're saying, I'm all in. We're in mission and on mission together. And, and I'm, I was talking with somebody recently how a lot of times when we, when we like contribute to the church and we give to something, you know, we give to the general uh, general offering to the general budget, it, it can feel a little bit detached. Maybe not knowing, okay, where's this money going? And I'm just kind of throwing into nothingness and I don't know where the money's going. Like, I just want to assure you, and if you ever have questions about that, come talk to us. We've, we, we are a line item church. Every, as Dave Ramsey says, every dollar has a name. And, uh, and you can see where the general offering goes. And so I just want to encourage you that, that if that's you and you're giving in that way, to know that you are throwing in on the mission of God that we're all on together as a church. And it doesn't matter whether you're bringing a dollar or a thousand dollars to the table. I, I don't know who gives what. I don't want to know who gives what. And I'll say this, it doesn't matter. What matters is that we're responding and saying what? We're on mission together. And that's what we see here in the church. 
Each one according to his ability. We don't need to know who gave what, just what. Man, we're, we believe in the gospel. We're sold out for the kingdom. And whatever God needs, I'm in on it, all in. And I just want to encourage you as a church. I'm so thankful for you in the way that that's being manifested even in our church this year. Um, if you're taking notes, a church on mission gives sacrificially to support the mission and meet the needs of others according to their ability. It's been an identity marker since day one. It's an identity marker today. Um, I had the awesome opportunity as a pastor of having a front row seat oftentimes to the way you respond to crisis and need within the body. And a lot of times as a church, when we get together on Sundays, you're not aware of maybe who has lost a loved one or who's just lost a job or who's going through a hard season or, right? You're not aware of all those things, marriages that are struggling. And so just being involved in counseling ministry here, I, I I get to see a lot of that. And then what I also get to see is how the church body, like you guys react and respond to one another and love on one another and, and live this out. What we just read, sacrificially giving of your resources, your time, your, your money, whatever it takes to see needs met. Keep doing what you're doing, church. You're awesome. I want to point out something else too. And so we're going to look at Acts 12 together. And I'm going to read the first few verses so you can kind of see what's happening and then we're going to look at Acts 12, 12. But first of all, here's the backdrop. So simultaneous with the church in Jerusalem catching wind of what's happening in Antioch, sending Barnabas down, now prophets and teachers are coming down to see for themselves what's going on. The Roman government catches wind of what's going on. And Herod issues a decree of persecution against the church amidst what's happening. So it was one thing when the non-Christian Jews watched the gospel go out through Judaism, but now they're taking this gospel to the unclean people. So the Jews are set on edge right now. The non-Christian Jews are set on edge in this region. And so here's what happens in, in Acts chapter 12. About that time, or you might, about that same time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Look what happens in verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Remember the disciples, James and John? This is where John, John, uh, excuse me, James dies. He's killed by the sword. And when he saw, Herod saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And if we kept reading in 12, there's a miraculous thing about to happen. Peter's in prison. Uh, not the first time he's been in prison. And, uh, and so... Right, through prayer, through supplication, through the church and their responses, God miraculously delivers Peter from prison. So we're going to pick it up in verse 12 after Peter's miraculously released from prison through God's intervention. And what he's going to do is this. He's actually going to look for um, a place to go to meet with believers. And so I don't know if you're familiar with John Mark, uh, Mark, the gospel writer, John Mark, um, but he's going to go over to his mom's house. Okay, so just a real story of what's happening here. So verse 12 says this. It's about Peter. When he realized this, which means when he realized he had been set free from prison, uh, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. I think what God ultimately wants us to see here is what a church on mission does in the midst of persecution, hardship, trials, and opposition. They press into the presence of God. This is a significant identity marker for the church. A church on mission will be a praying church, right? 
we can, we, can, we can chart out journeys. We can pitch in money together and buy, buy plane tickets. We can dig water wells. We can do a lot of tangible work with our resources. But God, when he calls us to do the supernatural, to do the thing beyond our abilities, right, this is where we have to make a decision to walk by faith. And I love how the church presses in in prayer Submitting themselves to the plans of God, praying for Peter, praying for this persecution, praying for one another. And so Peter gets released from prison. What does he find the church doing? And they're pressed in in prayer. It's a beautiful moment in the history of the church. A church on mission displays its dependency on God through prayer. The mission that Jesus has called us to is beyond what we can do ourselves. Every time you share your faith with somebody, you're engaging in something you can't do in your own strength. I'm just telling you that. You can't change hearts. And you can't talk people into believing in God or loving him. You can't. When you engage in sharing the gospel with somebody, what you're stepping out in faith, right? Faith comes from hearing and hearing the words of Christ. You're saying, I'm making a faith move here. I'm going to share the gospel with you. Believing God can do something in your life. The church on mission displays its dependency on God through prayer. Now we're going to jump to Acts 13. Acts 13. Now what we're going to see happen by the time we get to Acts 13 is this. So just to recap, the, the gospel in Antioch moves beyond the borders of Judaism to now the Gentiles. Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem catches wind of that. They send Barnabas down to get a report. Instead of taking a report back, he says, this is awesome. This is what we need everywhere. And so instead, he goes and gets Saul, Paul, and says, come be a part of this. And they set up shop for a year, discipling, teaching, and mentoring these believers. Okay? Now we're going to get to 13, which is going to be after that year. We're going to see what's happening. And now what's happening is this. Leadership is beginning to emerge within the church. It's not just Paul and Barnabas, but now he's going to mention some other people as well. Verse 1 of chapter 13. Now there were, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, he was still in the game. Simeon, who was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Uh, Menaean a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So you begin to see this elder body kind of emerging here in Antioch. Leadership is being established here after just a year. And look at what they're doing. Verse 2, while they, who's the they? This, this body of leaders. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Let's talk about this for a minute. This is a really remarkable verse. So you've got the elders of the church, the emerging leadership of the church. They're not just getting together to run a business meeting. What are they doing? They're fasting and worshiping together. And it's in, in this situation, this context, that the Holy Spirit speaks to them and gives them a directive for the church. So we, we step back and say, well, how do, how do we as a church hear from God. We got all these different members who are following God and spending time with God and he's speaking. How do we hear from God as a church? I love this. I love this example. This reminds me of, of our elder meetings, or at least what we shoot for in our elder meetings. We come together as, as a body of elders. We submit ourselves to God's word. We submit our opinions and we begin to discuss what would God have us do. You know, we don't vote on anything here at Solid Rock, even in our elder meetings. We don't vote. Any decisions that, that come across the floor and, and get rolled out to you, none of which 
um, made it by, by a slight margin. It's 100% or nothing. We operate on a 100% consensus as elders. We make no decisions based on a vote. Right, Daniel? And it's, and it's a lot of work. Sometimes it'd be easier just go over the information, let's vote. Ah, three to five, you two lose, we're rolling this thing, right? We just don't do that, why? Because in order to hear from the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit brings unity, we need to be unified. So what's, how do we know we've heard from the Holy Spirit? We're all on the same page, all of us. And I, I've shared this before. Sometimes back when there was four elders, three of us would be leaning one way and another one would be leaning the other way. And again, it wasn't a majority vote. This happened one time. I'll never forget the meeting with Larry, Larry Roberts. At the very end of the meeting, I said, hey, is everybody good? We ready to, to, to end our meeting? And Larry said, I'm still not settled on this one particular item. I just, I just can't, I don't have peace on it. And the other three of us, right, we were like, yeah, let's do this. Let's do this thing. I remember what the thing was. I just remember that moment. And we said, okay, stop. Let's go back. And we went back to that item. We brought it back up and discussed it. And y'all, the Holy Spirit changed the hearts of the other three to bring a unison and a unity for that decision. God was honored. The Holy Spirit spoke. So I love what's happening here. You know, another way to identify the Holy Spirit leading you personally or the church is it will oftentimes cut against the grain of what we naturally want to do. So let's just be honest for a minute. This church has been under the mentorship of Paul and Barnabas. That's not a light thing. I mean, these are, right, spiritual superstars, rock stars in this era. And I don't know if you've ever been involved in a church where you've had a strong spiritual leadership that God called to go somewhere else. That's a painful thing. It's a big deal. It's hard to, to, right, to, to recover and figure out what's happening here. And so this isn't like the lighthearted decision, you know what, well, we're kind of tired of Paul and Barnabas, let's so send them down the road. Like this is one identity market the Holy Spirit's spoken. Why? Because they're letting go of something that they had grown to love and depend upon. And so another way that, that, that you can understand the Holy Spirit working in your life is oftentimes he will lead you against the grain of what you naturally want to do. I don't naturally want to go talk to this person, but I, I feel like I should. That might be the Holy Spirit speaking. It's a good chance of that. Ah, this mission trip. I am, right? I, I don't like sleeping in tents and hot, sweaty, and you know all the excuses why you wouldn't go on this mission trip, yet you can't get away from it. That might, in fact, be the voice of the Holy Spirit calling you to go. And so here we see it. The Holy Spirit speaks. They're worshiping. They hear it. And the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now think about this. Here's what's happened. Revival breaks out in Antioch. Jerusalem sends Barnabas down. Barnabas doesn't go back to Jerusalem. He sends for help. He stays. They set up shop. They disciple for a year. Leadership is emerging. And now what's happening? Paul and Barnabas are being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Now what's, what's crazy is they're going to begin to work their way through the Gentile region. And ultimately the impact of what they're doing is going to reach its way back to Jerusalem. This gospel that comes out of Jerusalem, that's primarily being passed on from Jew to Jew. In Antioch, it explodes to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas go out. And we know Paul is this radical witness to the Gentiles. Go read his letters he wrote, right? Just passionate about the gospel for the Gentiles. Begins to make its way back to Jerusalem and eventually becomes part of our New Testament. What's happening here in Antioch? And so they're sent out, Paul and Barnabas, um, the people love to hear what they're having to say. You read the rest of chapter 13. They're preaching. People are showing up in groves. 
Um, about 40, we'll pick it up in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. So they're primarily preaching on the Sabbath once a week, public teachings. And the people are like, oh, please tell me you're going to be back next week. Please tell me you're going to be back. This, they're taking this beautiful, true gospel out and the people are soaking it in. And so look at verse 43. And after the meeting of the, of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, they followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. You feel this movement happening as they go out from city to city? So what seemed like a big deal when the gospel exploded in Jerusalem, it, right, is becoming amplified and magnified exponentially now that the gospel has broke out beyond the borders of Judaism and began to reach the nations. Pick it up in verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas, they spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And then look at what he says in verse 27. For so the Lord commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Antioch was such a turning point in the movement of the gospel in the early church. And it's in Antioch that they were first identified as Christians and these credible identity markers of a church on mission. If you're taking notes, a church on mission is committed to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Did everybody in Antioch go? No. But you've heard me say this before. A church on mission will be ascending church. We will be seeing missionaries and leaders emerge within our church. And rather than keeping everybody to ourselves, we'll become a launching pad to the ends of the earth. That's our family on a mission, sending uh, the Rathbuns there. That's our trips we go to the Philippines right now. Who knows where God will send us next? India, Afghanistan, who knows? But we know this, we will be a launching pad. If we're a church on mission, we'll be a launching pad to the ends of the earth. Verse 48 of Acts 13. Now, to get what's happening here, you've got to understand, up until this point, the Gentiles were outsiders looking in on the movement of the church. Okay? The only ones who were let in were the ones who were willing to either become you know, circumcised, become ritually clean as Jews first. And so for the vast majority of the Gentiles, they were outsiders looking in. And so now that... Paul and Barnabas were taking this gospel that exploded in Antioch out to these other Gentile towns and villages. Look at how the Gentiles are responding. In verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many were appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region now. What Jesus told them to do in Matthew 28, recorded in Acts 1-8, is now happening. It's exploding. The whole region. Verse 50, still opposition's happening. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing and leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. It's okay, why? Because that's where the gospel was going, Right? Fine, we're taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're done here. Look at what they do, verse 51. They shook off the dust from their feet against them. 
just, you can keep your dirt, right? We're on a mission here. We're headed to the ends of the earth. We've shared the gospel with you. We're moving on. Verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful example of a church on mission, isn't it? I mean, just starting from boom, almost nothing, exploding overnight, committing themselves to what? Baptizing new believers and teaching them to observe all that Jesus had commanded. What does God do? He emerges leadership from within the church and puts together a, a leadership team, an elder body to lead, and they launch out Paul and Barnabas to go out and take this gospel to the ends of the earth. This is what it looks like to be a church on mission. A church on mission finds joy in living for the glory of God. We don't find joy in everything going our way. We don't find joy in everybody responding the way we want them to respond. We find joy in living for the glory of God. Of God. That's an identity marker of a church on mission. I want to I pray for two things over us this morning. The first thing I want to pray for is this. My, my earnest, heartfelt prayer for us as a church throughout this whole series is that this sermon series would be so much more than a sermon series. Okay? My prayer is that, that what we've learned and what we're learning from God's word would truly be seeds of truth and plant it into the hearts of our people that would change us forever as a church. That we will look back a year from now and we'll be able to see fruit, the fruit that comes from being a church on mission. And, and, and I come into this somewhat um, baffled personally. Um, so let me just go off, off script here for a moment. Can I do that with you? Um, it's, it's somewhat ironic that we who, who have this gospel, who proclaim to be believers that God has loved us so much he sent his son to die on the cross for us. It's, it's somewhat, and ironic's probably too weak of a word. It's very convicting that, that we, need, we need sermons to pep us up to go do it. Can I just be candid? Um, and, and this is true for me, so I'm just going to own it too, okay? Um, just even in my recent experience with, with my father, for the last two years, I, I sensed God saying, hey, go to your dad and share, share the gospel with him. And, and it wasn't until things become critical and even terminal that I had the boldness and courage to go sit down with him and, and to find out and praise God. He was a believer already. He had already responded to the gospel, and for the last year, he'd been pursuing God and had a relationship with God, and he said to me, um, I know I'm forgiven, and I'm ready for God to take me any day. That was a week ago Friday, and um, you know, what a precious gift, but w why does it take him being in a terminal situation before I have the boldness to go and, and to share? And I don't know if that lands on anybody else in the room. Um, but, but here's the thing. If we believe what we say we believe, I mean, why are, why are we not like living this out? Like if we have what we say we have, we have eternal life living in us and the ability to give that to other people. Why are we, right? So I don't know how this lands on, on you today, right? Um, but my prayer for us is that we truly would become a church on mission. That for all our faults as a church, all the things we don't get right, the one thing that, that would truly mark us as a church in this community that people would say they they live out what they believe, right? They're a church truly on mission. 
And so that's part of my prayer for us today, um, that God would, would truly be planting seeds in, in our lives that would, that would potentially change the course of who we are for forever. And, and second to that, I want to pray for any person in the room today that doesn't have the hope, the eternal hope that we have in Jesus inside of you right now. And maybe you came today looking for hope. Maybe you came today kicking the tires on Christianity and you're not quite sure where you land. And can I just share with you the thing that makes Christianity different from any other religious system that you'll encounter here on earth, even the ones that you might make up for yourself, is this. It is the only place that you can find enough grace to cover all of your sins offered to you from God based on faith alone. You can find other religions that offer some form of forgiveness or grace, but you have to earn it whether it's forgiveness of sins or it's a good place in reincarnation. It's all based on works. It's only in Jesus that you find the work that needs to be done has already been done for you. And he simply says, come take what I offer and believe. And so I wanna, I wanna pray for you today. If you're here today and you have not responded to the gospel the way these believers are responding to the gospel, truly receiving the grace of God that washes over a multitude of sins and secures eternal life for you. I'm going to pray for you that today would be that day. As our worship team comes forward, let's pray together. Father, we just want to begin with uh, just a moment of honest confession. God, we are truly, um, even, God, those who, of us who know you, God, we are prone to wonder and we're prone to forget and so we do need, we do need the bold reminders of all that we have in Jesus. For each of us that is, that is saved, we've had those moments just like we just read about where we respond with rejoicing and, and giving glory to you. But for so many of us, like King David in the Old Testament, our hearts are prone to wonder and we need, we need to ask God, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? God, could we become a church that, that is fueled by joy, fueled by this passion to see your name glorified among the nations. God, would you protect us from ever becoming a church that does missions based out of obligation or a sense of trying to earn your favor, but could we truly be a church fueled by our passion for your glory and the joy we have being saved. We read about this church in Antioch, God, we don't assume for, for one second that they were a perfect church, but God, how we wanna, we wanna emulate their passion, their burning desire to learn and to grow and to be a part of your mission. God, would you do that work in Solid Rock Church? God, we do pray for any person here that doesn't know you personally. That today would be the day of salvation to respond to the free gift that you offer. God, I pray for that person right now that by faith they would truly believe in Jesus, believing in the work that he's done for them by dying on the cross and resurrecting from the dead for them. If that's you today, I just want you to know there's no greater hope you'll ever find on earth but to place your trust in Jesus and him alone. He has done the work for you to earn God's favor for you by believing in him right now. God accepts you 
He adopts you into his family. He calls you his own. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to pay it back but to simply believe and trust and follow Jesus. I hope you'll make that decision today.